welcome to a new podcast series on digital humanities in East Asian studies. I'm Amanda Schumann, and with me are Maggie Green and Alan Christie. Before we get started, um, we wanted to talk a little bit here about the premise of this new podcast we're starting about digital humanities in East Asia. Uh, why we're starting it now, um, what we wh- what the sort of rationale behind it is, and also. Um, you know, the kinds of issues that we'd like to broadly address. Before we talk about the rationale behind this podcast and sort of our, our broader ideas uh, for why we think this that it's pertinent that we start these conversations about digital humanities in East Asia at this point, uh, I'd like to introduce my podcast hosts and have them each, you know, say something about themselves. So if each of you could say something, perhaps uh, about your current position or your research, a bit of your background um, and the story of how you came into digital humanities uh, in in any way, shape, or form. So, uh, Alan, can we start with you? Sure. So I'm Alan Christie. I uh, am at UC Santa Cruz in the history department, uh, specialized uh, specialist in uh, Japanese history, but I teach broader East Asian things. A few years ago, probably around 2000, um, I think six or so, six or seven. Uh, I founded with a colleague, Alice Yang, uh, a Center for the Study of Pacific War Memories, which was a, a project that uh, arose out of a class that she and I were teaching together on, on memories of World War II in the Pacific. Alice is a specialist in, um, in U.S. history, Asian American history in particular, in the Japanese-American internment and uh, in its memory. Um, and out of that uh, that class, we had students doing a lot of projects, and uh, we, we discovered that, uh, you know, there were... Uh, good imperatives for, uh, doing some more, um, work in, in web development, web design, and, and teaching the students in the class about different kinds of, uh, technologies, particularly digital technologies that they could use to both do research on war memories and also present their research. And so it was really, in many ways, coming out of that class where, of course, at the time, Amanda, you were a graduate student here at UC Santa Cruz and you were one of the TAs for that class and, uh, you know, a lot of this uh, recognition of these possibilities uh, came uh, from conversations with you, um, you, you telling us about your time at the Center for History and New Media. So, um, you know, I came into it from that from that way. I don't really have much of a background in computing or in, in media production. Uh, the best I can say is my father was a coder from way back in the 60s, but uh, didn't pass that on to me. Um, but, uh, so now, uh, you know, as a co-director of the Center for Study of Pacific War Memories, I have a number of projects, uh, that do take on a little bit more of a digital history cast, uh, digital humanities cast. Um, and, uh, we'll be talking about some of those, uh, as we go on. Great. Thanks, Alan, so much. Um, Maggie, do you want to say a few words? And- sure. Um, I'm Maggie Green. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of History and Philosophy at Montana State University in Bozeman. Um, I did my PhD at UC San Diego. Um, I'm a specialist in modern Chinese history, but like Alan, I teach more broadly in East Asia. I also do work in game studies, um, and I'm moving into work on mountain studies as well. Um, I am not coming at the digital humanities from a sort of research perspective. Uh, my current work is very much focused on not digital uh, issues and nor using digital tools. Um, I look at 
cultural reform and censorship in the PRC in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, but I'm primarily interested in how we can um, use these tools, particularly to improve teaching and, and really give our students some um, skills. My undergraduate university, University of Mary Washington, has been very sort of forward thinking uh, when it comes to setting up digital initiatives in the classroom um, and figuring out how to deploy these kinds of tools. Um, and so that's sort of my primary interest, although thanks to my background in game studies, I think I am more familiar with more technical people than the average uh, Chinese historian. So yeah, not coming at it from, from research so much, but but thinking about sort of broader applications, particularly in the classroom. Great. Thanks so much, Maggie. Thanks uh, uh, for that introduction. I'll, I'll just say a few words about myself. Uh, I'm Amanda Schumann. I received my PhD in modern East Asian history with a specialty in China from UC Santa Cruz, where I one of my advisors was, uh, was Alan. But I sort of have what... For lack of a better description, uh, there's a few of us in the field called a hybrid background. Before I went to do my PhD, I worked for several years at the Center for History and New Media at George Mason University, which has since been renamed the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media at George Mason University. And there I was actually a web developer, or I think the sort of ambiguous title for a few years was online history project associate. And I was hired for that position in large part, not because I had any sort of uh, degree in history, but actually because I had a degree in information technology from Virginia Tech. So I ended up going the other direction. So a lot of people think that, you know, there, there's history people out there who go who go in the direction of web development and web projects. I went the other way, you know, and I always had a strong interest in history and ended up going in that direction for a variety of reasons, you know, involving the fact that I didn't enjoy IT consulting uh, in the corporate world. But while I was at the Center for History and New Media and trying to figure out what I was going to go back and do in graduate school, you know, and I kept finding myself uh, more going towards the direction of, of Chinese history and East Asian history. It struck me that none of the projects that I was working on there at the center, nor any that I knew of in digital humanities, and this is probably around 2000, 2003, 2004, 2005, actually none of them, as far as uh, as I knew, um, had anything at all to do with with East Asian history. So, and there was actually very little in East Asian studies um, as far as the digital humanities was concerned. So it was primarily, um, and some would argue still, a very sort of Anglo-Eurocentric focus in a lot of, in a lot of what we did. That's sort of my long trajectory and, and, and background into how uh, how I've always been interested in that. And when I was at UC Santa Cruz, as Alan mentioned, I worked a little bit with him uh, on his projects and in the classroom when I helped him with some of the digital project work for the World War II Memories class. Right now, my current position is I'm a fellow, but I'm actually going to a position to begin in August uh, this year at uh, Universität Freiburg in Germany, where I will be working on the Maoist Legacy Project, which is a large database project um, where we're collecting documents and um, cases that are related to transitional justice in the immediate post-Mao period. So, and that, and I will be primarily responsible for database and technical related aspects of that project in addition to research. So, 
I just say how how nice it is to hear in the contemporary environment in which we live that somebody in IT was feeling for herself that the humanities would be a more fulfilling life for her. <laughs> yes. If only more of our students felt that way. I have to say, it's actually surprising that there aren't more people doing uh, going that direction. I just... Maybe this is just a personal thing, but I just really felt like when I was in the corporate world that I had completely sold out. It was terrible. I was a number in the system. I won't talk about what my job was or who I worked for, but it felt at times sort of borderline to completely unethical in what I was sometimes doing. And it was just, it was deeply, it was the opposite of, of being rewarding. It was unfulfilling. Anyways, uh, let's, let's talk very briefly about some of the podcast themes and the, and, and the whys. You know, I said that we have, a, we have a sort of broad rationale here. Um, so, uh, first of all, I mean, one of the reasons that we wanted to, to have a podcast, uh, specifically about digital humanities in East Asia, um, is to talk about sort of what it means to do digital humanities in East Asia. So what is it about East Asia um, or Asia? We can talk about that too. But uh, what is it that makes it different than the broader sort of digital humanities? And that includes, you know, we can talk, we'll probably be talking at various points about sort of boundaries that exist, whether that's in area studies, whether that's uh you know, so sort of already existing boundaries and area studies where, you know, there's sort of the criticism I've heard from people outside of East Asian studies that, you know, criticize people, especially people in Japan and China fields for being too insular. But, you know, there's also the language issue. I hope at some point we can we can sort of talk about these. But, you know, I guess in our thinking was that one way of sort of getting us started on longer conversations and sort of making these about uh, different sorts of themes was that we would begin by introducing some specific projects and interviewing people who are working on those projects. And then in the process of doing that, we would also sort of explore various themes or issues that come with doing uh, work in the digital humanities in East Asia overall. Just to say this kind of, you know, for um, for those listening, we kind of envision this pr- this podcast as a way for not just other researchers and scholars, but also those who are who are teaching at all levels, researchers who might be professors, who might be independent scholars, who are doing various kinds, uh, they might be at think tanks. So we're thinking of researchers, those who have technical skills, those who don't have technical skills, those who are hybrid like me, hopefully more of us in the future, to gain sort of broader familiarity with the current terrain. And hopefully, maybe spark some interest in collaborative efforts by people hearing about each other on the podcast. And I think this is this is my sort of big pet peeve right now is, you know, I'm constantly turning my head and there's another project that that I'm running into where somebody, either somebody alone with a computer or just a few people at, at a particular university or, or whatnot are sort of trying to get a project started or already have or already working on a project, but they don't know who else is doing something in this field. So, yeah, I mean, that's sort of my thinking. Alan and Maggie, do you want to add sort of what you're thinking of? Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously, Amanda, a lot of the issues you raise are things that I'm thinking of, um, you know, especially this issue of kind of connecting people. I think I'm going to probably 
on the one hand, slightly unusual position, but on the other hand, not unusual. Um, I, I live in Montana. I'm very excited. The University of Montana has just hired a new Chinese historian, which means there will be two of us in the state. Um, you know, it, it, it is actually, it's, it's quite isolating in some respects. And since I'm also at a land-grant institution that doesn't have a lot of resources, it can be really difficult to uh, get collaborations going. And, you know, yeah, it, it is kind of unusual, but I think there's a lot more of us in Asian studies fields who are probably kind of scattered, you know, across the United States, across the globe, not at places with big research institutions and also in places where we can't easily access that sort of stuff. Um, so I do hope that this will be, you know, sort of an, a nice uh, compliment to things like, you know, academics on Twitter um, for, for connecting people um, and thinking about some of the challenges that come along when one is at an institution that doesn't for instance, have a lot of support for faculty to do work with digital humanities, um, doesn't have support for faculty to do stuff in the classroom. I can tell part of the story later of fighting with the university IT department about whether or not I was allowed to have a WordPress blog um, for my for my class. But yeah, just as Amanda said, making connections and, uh, you know, thinking about how we can, you know, hopefully develop more of a culture in our fields, such as exists in, you know, American history, European history, American studies and things like that. Yeah. And, you know, when Amanda was talking to me about this general problem that we're all understanding about a kind of atomization in our field, right? Uh, people doing a, a project, they don't know who else is doing a similar project. They don't know who else might be interested in, in uh, contributing or joining their project in some kind of way. So, you know, one of the, the big uh, issues is is building up a, a stronger sense of what all the different parts of this broader field are like and how people might make contacts with other people. That's that's a really important thing. And I think a podcast is actually a great place to do it because you can listen to conversations with people who are doing some of this stuff and really get a much better sense, I think, about what's going on in there than, than you would in um, you know a, a web page that simply had a list of projects and linked you over there. I think sometimes hearing some of the backstories as to how these projects got going or some of the stories of uh, frustrations or aspirations uh, in projects is, is also really very helpful. So I thought a podcast would be a great way to, to do this. And of course, you could, we can develop a, a web page that's a, a site for, uh, you know, links and uh, a follow-up matter and that kind of thing. But uh, the podcast, I thought, was a pretty nice way to do it. In part, you know, it's a, it's a kind of, uh, it's a kind of media that can, can fit into our busy lives in, in many ways. I'm a father of two sons, uh, which means that uh, I drive a lot of miles. <laughs> So, you know, a podcast is something that you can consume while you're driving and, you know, you want those to be entertaining. And also, you know, I thought the podcast was a nice medium, you know, in terms of the larger, the larger issue I've been noticing over the last couple of years that I, when I go to digital humanities conferences, I'm generally the only Asianist there. And, uh, you know, there, if there are people who, who are doing, um, history projects, a lot of the, the people, by the way, are doing literature projects, of course, which is something that we'll want to be thinking about as well, even though the three of us are all historians. But, you know, there are very few people doing the Asian stuff. And when I talk about some of the things that I'm trying to achieve in the project, there will be, you know, uh, an appreciation for the projects. They'll, they'll talk about certain things that excite them. But the Asian stuff doesn't connect at all. And I actually think that some of the things that I'm trying to do in these projects are things that, um, you know, it's it's something about what we have to do when we're doing Asia, particularly when we're doing Asia outside of Asia, right? We're, we're all translators in a sense. When we're doing things about Asia 
and our you know our, our homes are loca- uh, the locations of some of our target audiences are outside of Asia. Uh, we're doing things that actually are intellectually challenging and intellectually challenging in a way that might be able to at times set certain kinds of agendas for the field of digital humanities. To you know, borrow the phrasing of someone like Quan uh, Xingchen, you know, Asia as method. Is there is there something about the Asian studies that we're doing that will provide methodological challenges uh, for digital humanities? Uh, we can easily talk about what digital humanities is doing to the methodologies that we can use when we're doing our, our research or our teaching in East Asia. But I also like to try to think about the other direction as well, and that has you know at times uh, to do with things like uh, language, obviously being one of the very big ones. So. Uh, that's I think that's one of the the larger issues that I'm I'm consistently interested in doing. Yeah, great. I mean, the language issue, Alan, is really something that, you know, and maybe that's like maybe that's the perfect segue in, into talking about some of your projects that you've been doing with students, actually. <laughs> so um, let's talk a little bit about a project you've been working on called the Gale Project. From what I know about it, though, the students aren't necessarily working in Japanese language documents for that one. Or are they? They aren't yet. And, you know, most of the undergraduates, I'd say that in the course of, I think, of maybe 25 to 30 people have been involved. And in that group, one has is able to work sufficiently in, in Japanese language texts. We, we have a lot of documents that we've collected that are in English language uh, and that the students can work with. And I can give you more details about that in a minute. But um, one of the things that I, that I really like to think about when I'm when I'm doing these projects is of course I'm, it's ideal if our students learn the languages at, at the same time as as the three of us know uh, if you're not you know raised in a context in which these languages are frequently used and even if you are these are not easy languages for English speakers to pick up it takes a lot of time you know our, our friends in um, in the romance languages uh, may have a, a, a quicker path from beginning learning to being able to use materials so that if, you know, someone in the first year of university starts learning French by fourth year, you can be expecting them to be reading novels. That's just not true in Chinese or Japanese language studies, right? So there's always going to be a ceiling for us in terms of uh, if you're trying to have undergraduates working in primary source materials, there's a ceiling as to how much they can do in, in the primary languages themselves. So Right from the beginning, you know, as we all know, we're working with stuff that's in translation and you are bound uh, very much by the um, the vicissitudes of the field over the years. What, did, what, what looked like things that were worth translating to people and what were things that didn't look like they were worth translating or what were things that looked like they were worth translating but who has the time, right? So we work in the primarily in the English language stuff. But, you know, it felt to me for a long time like there was, there was a real um, – artificiality to that in a way in that we don't say to somebody you can't go to china or japan until you've learned the language we say go even if you don't speak the language and they pick up a phrase book and they use it poorly Uh, but the thing is that if you go to japan or china from the united states as an english speaker you figure it out right you find somebody who can translate for you you learn to read you know signs of the landscape and, and you know signs directions, that kind of thing, um, you learn to create these sort of pigeon forms of communication like they had in the 19th century in China. You figure it out. And, you know, when I think back to what we're doing in 
as teachers of, of East Asian subjects in the schools here, we're trying to present them with important information about those societies. But I think one of the things that we really need to, to be bringing to them is a sense of the, uh, of the vastness of the Chinese or Japanese language archive or, you know, the Chinese and Japanese language worlds, right? You, you, we all have this experience when you're teaching where, you know, somebody comes up to you and, and they say, well, based on what I've read here, this is what I think is going on in China or Japan, and you say, well, you know, what you just read was the tiniest sliver <laughs> of an introduction to that subject. And actually what goes on in the Japanese or Chinese language is a vast discourse, right, with all kinds of incredible nuances and whatnot. Uh, and so, you know, the real trick is not just to introduce them to certain topics, you know, women's history or, you know, memory of war or, you know, other kinds of social memories, uh, but to introduce them, uh, get them to have the capacity to imagine the vastness of the discourse that's, that's unavailable to them in that language. And then try to see if you can work with them to figure out strategies where they can begin to poke around in this language world that they can't really understand. There's been some interesting work on this kind of stuff. There's a guy in University of Maryland named Douglas Ord uh, who's been working on multi-language searches where, you know, you put in a, a search term in English and then you designate that you want, you know, all the hits on the web that are going to be relevant to that English language word, but in the Chinese language or French or something like that, right? And uh, I saw him give a talk about this and he called the uh, the talk Finding Stuff You Can't Read. And uh, I loved it, right? Because, you know, he, he was working with people who knew the languages, you know, and they would use words that had multiple nuances. And, you know, we want the nuance for the word wonder that means like wonders of the world rather than I wonder what I will have for lunch today. You know, they wanted to fine tune the searches that well. And then they could find all this stuff. And then what Douglas Ord was saying is after, you know, after you get his presentation, I've helped you find this stuff. Now, at that point, my job is done. You have to figure out what you want to do with it. And I thought that's where my job begins, Right. If you can show the students that, in fact, the vastness of the discourse in Japan, right? Here's, as a Japan, person who teaches Japanese history and teaches memories of World War II, you know, the most irksome phrase, I, irksome comment I get is, oh, the Japanese, you know, have suppressed, they have amnesia about World War II. And, <laughs> you know, uh, no, they don't. They haven't. There is a vast literature. It is a constant con uh, conversation. Unfortunately, not all of them agree with what you think they should be thinking about World War II. But just because they don't think what you think they should be thinking about World War II doesn't mean that they don't think about it. They think about it, in fact, almost obsessively. And so, you know, you have to give them the ability to imagine that there's a, an amazing amount of material out there, a rich world that they don't have access to but that they could begin to develop a kind of strategy for accessing that stuff. This is somewhat related to the Gale Project, right? I mean, this is sort of, this is... Yes. Right. So could you tell us a little bit about this? Because I know what I basically know about them is, is that they're photographs. So there's a medium right there where the students probably see photographs and they want to engage with them because they don't have this problem. Exactly. So the Gale Project is not named after Gail Hershatter who is my beloved, beloved colleague and a giant figure in our field, I hope, for everyone to know. It's named uh, after a, a man named Charles Gale. So Charles Gale was a dentist, and uh, during World War II, he got his training in dentistry through the Army Reserve Program, the ROTC program. And the war ended before he was drafted, and uh, so and he was in the Army Reserve. In 1952, he was called up uh, to serve in the Army, and they sent him to Okinawa, 
uh, to run one of the hospitals there. This is during the Korean War. Gail was an avid photographer, amateur, but but avid. And you can imagine a dentist, you know, he understands film. He knows how to, you know, process film and print film and whatnot. This is part of his job. But he had this also, this side of him that, you know, aspired to create art. So when he went to Okinawa for that year, he brought his camera with him, uh, a Roloflex, and he shot pictures throughout the year. And they turned out, uh, according to his daughter, who brought the pictures uh, to me, to be his favorite pictures from his whole life. You know, after, after Okinawa, he came back. He had a lifelong career as a dentist in California. He did shoots in the Sierras with Ansel Adams. You know, he had some really impressive um, opportunities to pursue his passion in photography. But for his whole life, it was the photographs he took in Okinawa that were that were his um, his favorites. That he kept them with him always. They were always up on the walls of his of his home or his dentist office. So he had passed away, and his daughter wanted to uh, do something, uh, you know, in his memory. She was an employee at the university here as our university auditor. So she approached the director of one of the galleries on campus, the the Mary Porter Cessna gallery. Um, Shelby Graham was the director there. And she approached Shelby and said, my father took these photographs. I wonder if it's possible for us to do an exhibit, an, an exhibition of his uh, photographs sometime. Shelby, who her, herself is a, a photographer amongst her other arts, uh, said they looked like they were aesthetically of merit, but she wanted to find out if there was any kind of historical interest in these photos. So they eventually found their way to me. And Okinawa is, of course, one of the, the fields that I, I study. So I looked at the photographs and, uh, you know, Okinawans have the longest life expectancy in the world, and I looked at these photographs, and I, I knew right away that uh, many of the people in the photographs are probably still alive, or at the very least, they're, they are in the living memory of people who are in Okinawa today. Um, I also looked at the photographs and saw, you know, quite immediately that um, what we were seeing in those photographs from 1952 is a landscape that that is entirely lost. The Americans expanded the land appropriations for bases uh, dramatically between 1952 and 1956. So you had a lost uh, landscape. You had people in these photographs, you know, who uh, who were in some ways accessible. And I said, you know, we can do an exhibition here, but we should really do it in Okinawa. Because if we take these photographs to Okinawa, people there will tell us who these people were. They'll tell us about these landscapes. We'll have an opportunity to do a project in which, you know, we look at a photographer's work and then we let the subjects of the photographs speak back to us about that moment of encounter between the photographer and uh, and the subjects of the photographs, the Okinawans themselves. So that's the, the sort of basic premise of, of the Gale Project is um, to use these photographs and oral histories, both with Okinawans looking at the photographs, but also with Americans who were stationed in Okinawa or lived in Okinawa in one way or another, most hopefully in the 1930s, but also, uh, not 1930s, I'm sorry, in the, in the 1950s, but also 1960s and 1970s would be, would be perfectly fine as well. But to, you know, use those photos to sort of open up oral histories about that moment, that early moment in the American occupation of Okinawa. Uh, and to think about what kinds of trajectories were set then, what kinds of, you know, aspirations and, and uh, disappointments and whatnot uh, came out of there. You know, at that point, I, I also thought that if you're approaching it in that way, then you have a very good opportunity to bring in a lot of uh, students to work on this, to learn what research is like in history and to begin to, um, to participate in this as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic way to get, you know, students interested. Like I said, I mean, it's, I, I think they sort of have an affinity for photographs and, and, and media to begin with. Uh, at least that was my experience in the World War II memories class, the number of people who want to do, you know, 
something with oral history or Captain America instead of sitting and reading documents. Also, you know, what I find impressive is that, you know, well, there's a lot of things I find impressive about this particular project um, and what you've been doing with the students. But why did you decide to do a digital project or, or, or in what ways are you expanding the project in sort of the digital realm? I, I do know you have some students uh, and I should say this so other people on the podcast know you have some students who are writing about what they're doing on Medium. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. No, I, you know, it's funny because I came back from a conference at UCLA a little while ago, a, a digital humanities conference at UCLA, and I started writing an essay for myself uh, called, you know, is the Gale Project a digital humanities project? Because, you know, I wasn't sure whether, you know, whether that was the, the best way to, to describe it. But I do think it is. I just wanted to sort of work around, is this a digital humanities project or not? But um, the very first thing, of course, is we want people to see the photographs and give us information about the photographs. So we could, uh, you know, get on airplanes and go to Okinawa and, uh, you know, set up whatever kinds of interv interviews we could and, you know, get people to look at the photographs. And, you know, we could team up with uh, partners in Okinawa, give them the photographs and have them show them to a lot of people and, and get that information in. It's much harder to do the other side of the thing, which is, you know, to to gather information and impressions about the photographs from Americans who had been in Okinawa. So, and, and those are very important to me because, you know, when you look at the photographs and you think, okay, these are taken by an American serviceman. Why were these, in, why were these images of interest to him? Why did he take pictures of these parts of the landscape? Why did he take pictures of these kinds of people? Was it, was he driven by a kind of exoticism, which would be easy to understand in the 1950s, right? Was he driven by other kinds of interests? What, in fact, you know, were the things that drew Americans' eyes to those features of Okinawa, right? We're trying to understand in many ways, because this is an American occupation of Okinawa, you know, the, the Americans built a kind of quasi-democracy there, a democracy that could be over, overruled any number of times by the military whenever they felt it was impinging on their prerogatives. But, uh, you know, the Americans were running uh, Okinawa. And in fact, in running Okinawa, what you can see very quickly is it's actually a, a knowledge-generating enterprise. They have to understand Okinawa in order to run it. And in fact, we might normally think of an American military occupation as being sort of a bull in a china shop. You know, we're the ones with the guns. You do what we say. But when you look uh, actually at how the occupation is, was run, um, the Americans were trying, and this is true with ev every colonial enterprise in history, right? It's a massive knowledge generating machine. And so, you know, if you, if you take that premise uh, and you take them to the, to the level of this individual photographer who's only there for a year, why were these images of interest to him? Did he bring something from the United States, some kind of uh, predispositions? Or do we have access to certain kinds of uh, training documents? How was he prepared for Okinawa? How did that preparation that he got for Okinawa uh, play into his decision to make these kinds of photographs, right? So what what are the all of the inputs that went in to the American side to create these photographs? as a, a corollary to the Okinawan side, right? If we're interviewing Okinawans about these photographs, we want to know who these people are. We want to know what these places were. We want to know their experiences. But we also, in a lot of these photographs, what you see here is somebody who's, whose face is a little bit surprised or 
to be honest, at times unhappy because, as you can well imagine, they're living their lives and suddenly this gigantic man in a, in a you know, an American military form, uniform is pointing a camera at them. This is not always an, a, a pleasant, uh, you know, experience. And he notes that on the back of many of the photographs. He's written in pencil comments in the back, right? So you see these, these photographs and many of them are, you know, real encounter moments, right? And you can see that behind whatever you know, thin surface we have in the photograph of the, of a composing of a face, you can, you can get access to the idea that there was an encounter here and that it was fraught with all kinds of things. This is an encounter, you know, that, that is framed within the power relationships of, of the American, you know, army captain, uh, taking a photograph of a civilian in some way, right? So, you know, what were the Okinawans, uh, feeling about that relationship, about what, what happened in that encounter moment for them as well? We can easily ask about uh, what Okinawans are feeling by going to Okinawa. It's a small place, you know, and working with a number of institutions there, we could do a lot of oral histories. You know, where the Americans are right now, uh, we're in California. Some of them are in California. Some of them are in North Carolina or Louisiana or Wisconsin or New Hampshire, right? They're all over the country. And uh, particularly if they're Korean War veterans, if we're trying to get people who were there in 1952 when the photos were taken, well, that's now the dying generation that, you know, we were talking 10 years ago about the World War II generation dying off, right? These people are harder and harder to find. And Korean War era people who were in, in Okinawa are a subspecialty, you know, subgroup within that. So, you know, it really was an access uh, question, access to our, our uh, sources. And if your sources are oral history sources, then they're people. And where are those people? Um, if you put this on the web and you work with different organizations who have access to the networks of people out there, to call them in to come to the web, then they can come to the web and they can see the pictures and they can give you their stories. So one of the things that we we wanted to develop for this was a way for people to come to the website, look at a picture, uh, press a button that would turn on a microphone on their computer and allow them to start talking right away uh, to say, oh, yeah, no, I remember these kinds of scenes. You know, uh, so many people had bare feet and this was something that was that was that really stood out to me at the time or you know i have a story about a boy i met on the you know in a village once that that i'm reminded of by this picture here right so one of the reasons to go online is is access to our sources uh to the degree that we're doing oral history work there's another uh, dimension of this that developed and that is that you know i wanted uh the students in looking at these pictures to do two things. I wanted one, I asked them, this began in a seminar I taught on Okinawan history. I said, look at the photographs and I want you to develop research projects that are, you know, rooted in something that you saw in the photographs. Learn to look at the photographs as a, as an artifact that can generate research questions. So they did that kind of thing. And one of the things that that has to happen at that moment is they have to learn how to place these photographs and their research questions into a historical content, a context. Uh, and at that moment, you start to move into the documentary world, right? The, the world of documents. And I'd had a graduate student who was doing an MA with me named Jeremy Snow, who had gone to the National Archives in Washington, D.C. to do some research on land appropriation in Okinawa in 1954. Uh, and he had uh, taken pictures of a couple hundred documents, maybe six, seven hundred documents. And those documents were available thanks to Jeremy. He shared them with me for the students to look at. And they were finding great things in those documents to help them contextualize the photographs. So then another one of my students got $500 from, from somebody on campus, and he flew off to Washington, D.C., and he spent three days taking photographs of more of the American military documents at the National Archives. 
Uh, and he came home with uh, another 1,500, 2,000 documents or so that he contributed to the project. Now the students who are working on the project have a larger cache of documents. So then we decided to put together a, a more ambitious trip, and I sent three students to the National Archives for a week, and they came home with 9,000 documents. <laughs> now we have this, uh, you know, these are documents that were, nobody's digitized in the National Archives. Digitizing the records of the American military in the 1950s and 60s in Okinawa is not a high priority for anybody, right? But now we have all these documents. Many of them were declassified not that long ago. And now my students can dig through thousands, 10,000 or more uh, documents and, you know, really deepen their research questions that have arisen out of these suggestive photographs, right? What is the, sorry, what is the copyright policy on those? Are you putting those online? Are you using them? Are you- these are American, these are American government documents. So these are public so, you know, now, now we're thinking, look, uh, sharing these photographs with Okinawans is a nice contribution to their public memory. But we could share something even more valuable with them, which is this documentary record of how they were ruled from 1945 to 1972. So you know, when we start to look at these documents, we're thinking, well, this is really helping us with our research. What if we helped Okinawans get access to this stuff as well? What if we put these online in our on our website and then organize them in such a way that people could in Okinawa could look at these documents and do their own research projects, right? And so this is a, a part of the, the project that we're developing now. I've got students who are trying to process 9,000 documents. Uh, you know, we've got spreadsheets, people putting metadata metadata in. Uh, I've got students who are working with the, the library staff to do optical character recognition processing on these things so that we can put these documents online and they can be searchable. We don't have to retranscribe them. In other words, uh, they can be searchable. If they're searchable, we can, we can also start to make them accessible to translation if people want to be translating certain documents in particular. So the project has grown from, you know, something it began with. Here's some pictures. These pictures uh, offer us a step into an oral history investigation of the time that would allow Okinawans and, Jap- and Americans to sort of speak back to each other again across the decades to a project that has that dimension and also has this now very rich documentary uh, archive. We can continue to grow that archive. We found some great materials at the Bancroft Library at Berkeley. The Hoover at Stanford has some. Uh, Michigan State University was tasked with running the uh, running the University of the UQs in the 1950s and 60s. So there's all this stuff at, in Lansing, Michigan, about uh, the management of, of education in Okinawa. So, you know, we can really build on those. And, of course, we can work with the stuff that they have uh, in Okinawa um, if, if we build those partnerships right. So the project began with, uh, can we put some photos uh, in a, a gallery and share with everybody my father's, you know, aesthetic vision? This is uh, Jerry Gale's um, initial vision. And now, you know, she's loving the idea that her father's photographs are opening, unlocking this very big uh, research potential. This sounds great. And, and, you know, just to be clear for listeners, I mean, these are primarily undergraduate students who are doing this kind of, um, you know, project work. These are not MA and PhD students other than uh, you mentioned Jeremy Snow, who I also know. And I think this is an important distinction. I don't know that many people out there who are actively getting their undergraduate students involved in projects like this that is also part of their their project work for a seminar or for a class for you. Right, right. Yeah, so you know they are learning how to build spreadsheets and uh, you know determine the, me- the the appropriate metadata 
for a document. Um, and, you know, they're working with uh, the archivists at the library who have these metadata training sessions for them. Uh, and they're working with the web development folks. Uh, they're working with uh, media production folks. Uh, you know, there's one other dimension to this, which is, and, and I, I know I've gone away too long, but the other dimension to this is that, of course, in order to do this project, we need money. You know, this is something nobody told me till late in graduate school. Uh, but one of the things that we I, I want to do is I want to take them to Okinawa, right? They've been looking at the photographs, you know, and they've been learning lots of things uh, in, in the archive. What happens? What's the difference between working in the archive and working on site, right? What happens when you go to Okinawa and you actually have to figure out how to collaborate with an Okinawan colleague uh, to do a project, right? There's a whole bunch of learning that happens over there. So I want them to go to Okinawa, but we got to raise money for that. And how do you raise money for that? Well, sometimes you do as I've done, which is to shame some of your upper administrators in the university and t because they love this project, as you can well imagine, you know, happy pictures of students being fully engaged in, you know, primary source research. Uh, they're all photogenic, right? Uh, you know, they, they love this project and for, uh, I, I hope for very good reasons. They talk about it a lot and I, I occasionally say to them, you know, every time you talk about this, it costs you money. You have to give me money to help me continue doing this. But more importantly, I'm also trying to train the students that to do a project like this, you have to have you have to be able to understand how to work with documents. You have to be able to understand how to work with this technology. But you also have to learn how to make the pitch to people, to the general public, that this is of interest and that they might want to help you continue doing this by giving you money. So now what, how do you do that? Well, you, you create a Facebook page and you create a Twitter account and you create maybe a Tumblr account and you have an Instagram account. So, you know, our, the students are using social media and as they're using social media, they're learning about things like documenting their own process of doing research so they can share it with people out in the world. Um, students are, are beginning to learn the value of sharing with the world the work that they're doing as they're doing it. So we created a, a site at medium.com for, for students to publish articles uh, that are maybe from uh, 750 words to 2,000 words length, different lengths, in which they're either talking about research that they've done or they're talking about the research process that they've been going through. We've created some videos. We've just finished a crowdfunding video. We have uh, a start on a podcast series that uh, in which they're learning how to tell the stories about what they're doing. And part of this is just, you know, sharing to the world. And part of this, of course, is understanding that it's through making this stuff and by sharing it with the world that you get people to support you and that people recognize the value of this. And then people, somebody somewhere says, this is so good. I want to give you $10,000 or this is so good. I want to give you 10 bucks. It's, it's all I have, but you know, that's all I can afford to give, but 10 bucks. I love this project. Why don't, why don't I help you out in some way? This is also in the end, and this is where it gets back to, you know, what we, what we want our humanities students to learn, which is to how to advocate for themselves, to be able to say the stuff that I'm doing in history is, of real value, right? It's of interest. It's of value to the world. My students now are all total converts to the notion that Okinawa is one of the most important places for anybody to know. It's the keystone of the Pacific, right? It's the most important American military base in the global network, you know? And how is it possible that nobody knows this place? My students are constantly sort of, you know, holding their hands up in that, that gesture of, of bewilderment. How is it possible that nobody knows this place, right? And now they become passionate advocates for themselves. So, you know, if you to step back and say, so what's the DH in this stuff? Part of it is access stuff, right? Getting access to the things that you need. Part of it is about sharing. Um, and part of it is about learning the, the techniques of actually doing the work, um, you know, now that we're OCRing this stuff, we're getting ready to do distant reading, you know, big 
large-scale readings of 10,000 documents. We've OCR'd them all. Now we can start to see, you know, can we discern patterns in American military orders in the documentary flow that comes out of the different kinds of, of places? We're thinking about uh, user interfaces. You know, if you're going to give people access to 10,000 10, documents, do you just give them a list on the page and inc- encourage them to click? <laughs> no, you have to figure out some way to make 10,000 documents accessible to people. Well, maybe you make it accessible by theme, or maybe you create a an interactive map. If people want to come at these documents, maybe they're going to come at them by, I want to find all the documents relevant to, to Ginoza, for example, which is a a town there, or maybe uh, one of the things that I've I've dreamt about is getting people to understand that these documents are products of living processes. They're they're social entities, not inert objects out of the out of the archive. And that means they were made by somebody at a certain moment in time in order to ma- have an effect on the world in which they lived. They're meant to be distributed to people, and the people who receive these documents were meant to take action on that basis, right? And so what if you created an interface that, that really emphasized the, the social uh, existence side of these documents by saying you get these documents by virtue of the organization chart of the military and which, which parts of the military are generating what kind of documents going to what kinds of places, right? So now the students are thinking, you know, because they're, they're having a technological issue, they're thinking also about what does it mean to have a document like this. And then finally, you know, it's the language issue. Okinawans shouldn't be expected to translate their memories for us. They shouldn't be giving their memories in English. They should be giving them in Japanese or in Okinawan. The the last thing I'll say is that actually it's by virtue of, of, uh, of a commitment to making sure that we have, you know, the people in Okinawa can share in Japanese or in Okinawan, whichever they want to speak, that actually it's been a big key to being able to have, uh, you know, good conversations with people in Okinawa. The Okinawan language has been designated by the Japanese government as a uh, an endangered language. And so when I presented this idea to, to people in Okinawa, for example, the Prefectural Museum, they said, could we record uh, those interviews, particularly with the elderly in Okinawan, and have that contribute to that? you know, to our, 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 our archiving of our linguistic heritage. And I said, well, that's exactly what I want to do. You know, I, I unfortunately can't speak Okinawan, but, you know, so that became a, a really important issue for them over there to collaborate with us is that, you know, it is in Japanese and not in English or it is in their language. So, so I apologize. The Gale Project is actually a, a large octopus-like uh, thing that has taken over my life in part because so many of these extra bits have seemed you know, logical. But you know what? I'm sure we're going to have other people on the podcast in the future, Alan. They're going to say exactly the same thing. So, you know, I think an important topic related to that is how when something like this takes over your life, how does this play into your job and your sort of overall um, role at the university, as well as getting credit for it, if we want to put it that way, from your administrators. You know, it's it's very nice when administrators are happy to see photographs, but how does that actually play into your role as a scholar, both in terms of the university, but also broadly in terms of your field and, and other, you know, your peers and that kind of thing as well. And those are, I, I know I've spoken to quite a few people recently that have these concerns um, because I think your project is wonderful. And I really, truly hope that it's being valued as much as 
other sorts of uh, types of scholarly output. We'll just wrap it up real quickly here. Um, thanks so much for sharing with us what you're doing on the Gale Project. I, I think there's probably a lot of people out there who are looking for ways to engage their students in, in the classroom in ways that are appealing to the students, but also, as you said, there's marketable job skills issues, but ways that are intellectually engaging. I mean, I know that you've told me in the past that one of the things that has surprised you the most about doing these kinds of projects, whether it's the Gale Project or, or, or similar things you've done, is the number of students who want to continue doing the project even after the semester's over. There's no grading. They want to stay on and they want to keep doing this. Yeah, no, that is the, that is one of the things that does happen. And, you know, now those who finished and moved on in the world are, you know, some of them went on to become um, graduate students at other programs. Uh, some of them have gone on to learn Japanese or whatnot, have spent time in Korea. So um, th that's the most gratifying part in, in a way, right? Well, hey, thanks so much for sharing that with us. Um, let me just uh, thank you. Thanks, Maggie, too, for uh, introducing yourself and talking a little bit about what we want to do in, in the future with this podcast. I just want to say very briefly, I'm still in the process of setting up the podcast site, but... It will be a place in which we can put some links. Alan, if you could give me some links for the Gale project that you think would be worth sharing with people. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. And uh, it'll also, I'll also put a way to contact us on the website for those who are listening. If you have comments or suggestions or advice, topics you'd like to hear, or, you know, even comments about, I don't know, audio quality or, 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 or format or anything like that, it's perfectly fine. The other thing I'll say is that I, all three of us are on social media in various forms. We, I think we all have uh, Facebook and Twitter accounts. We all have Twitter accounts. So, so real, so real quickly, if people want to follow you on Twitter, Maggie, what's your Twitter handle? MC Green, G-R-E-E-N-E-S-D, as in San Diego. Um, and that's also my Instagram. And mine is uh, at A.S. Christie. S is for Scott. A.S. Christie. And I'm Amanda Schumann. I'm at Amanda UCSC, which I guess I'll never get to change, but... <laughs> you should have thought about it that back then, shouldn't you? <laughs> I feel a little bad since I'm not technically affiliated with the university anymore that I chose that handle originally. But yeah, I have the same thing with mine because, of course, the the SD is for San Diego because I couldn't get just my my initials. Sadly. Well, you know, we'll see how long Twitter lasts. True. Anyways, thanks everyone for listening today to this inaugural podcast of Digital Humanities in East Asia. I want to thank both my hosts, Maggie and Alan, for a great conversation. We hope that you'll leave us feedback on our new website at www.dheastasia.org. You can leave a comment right in the comment section of any of the posts. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that you'll tune in next time.